All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20. We are basically at the end of Revelation 20, looking at the book of life, but I want to back up a couple verses and look a little bit more on the books that are open. Even though we don't have a lot said about these specific books that are open, we do know in Revelation chapter 20 that there'll be an opening of books at the Great White Throne Judgment. It's a heavy deal that's coming up. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So heaven and earth have departed at this point. This is obviously after the second coming, after the thousand-year reign of Christ. You just back up into chapter 20. Right before this, you see that uh, Satan was bound for a thousand years. Christ returned in chapter 19 to destroy the beast and the false prophet to set up his kingdom in chapter 20, the first few verses. Uh, And there was a resurrection of the believers. Uh, The first resurrection, it's called, which... It doesn't happen seven years earlier, by the way. The first resurrection is at the end. It's called the first resurrection, not the second after a pre-trib rapture resurrection, but it's the first resurrection. And then they reign with Christ for a thousand years, and we believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. Many don't because they just ignore what that scripture clearly teaches. Six times it mentions a thousand years. And then uh, after the thousand years, Satan's let loose because he's bound for a thousand years. And... He's able to deceive uh, those who have repopulated the earth. While we reign with Christ in Jerusalem, we won't be deceived. We have new bodies and we're we're with him and with him forever, it says. And then after that, when they come against uh, Jerusalem and the Lord Father wipes them out with fire, just tortures them, then you have heaven and earth pass away. And between, this is a trip, between the old heaven, the old earth that pass away, and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21, the first few verses, there's like this parenthetical period of time where you see in verse 11, then I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And we studied this through already. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And, the, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Right now, the wicked go to Hades, okay? When we talk about hell, we talk about people going to hell right now. Uh, Technically, they're going to Hades right now, a holding facility, which is still a terrible place. Just look at what happened to the rich man, right? Who didn't regard Christ, didn't seek the Lord. Uh, And death and Hades will give up their dead, and death and Hades will be thrown into, it says right here, Then death and Hades, verse 14, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So then we read in verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You want to make sure your name is in the book of life. And the lake of fire is not a place place of annihilationism. We know that because in Revelation chapter 10, or chapter 20, I'm sorry, verse 10, look at verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet, what? Where the beast and the false prophet, what's the next word? Are. Also. And they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. The beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire over a thousand years earlier. In Revelation 19. Then you have the reign of Christ for a thousand years. And the other things I talked about that would transpire. Then Satan himself, who was bound for a thousand years, is now thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet still are. And they'll be there tormented forever, it says, and ever. And that's an important point to emphasize because Satan would love you to minimize the judgment that's coming on the wicked. And that's why he rises up people like Rob Bell, who writes a book called Love Wins, and that love's going to win everybody, and nobody's going to actually be in the lake of fire, perhaps, and so forth. And, and by the way, that guy's not even in fellowship right now. He started teaching a bunch of New Age heresies. And I have a mess of videotape on the emerging church we did called this emerging church where I have a whole section on Rob Bell in hell you know before he got even worse warning that this guy's apostate so we need to stick with the scripture especially because we're warned that in the last days people would rise up tickling people's ears tell them what they want to hear people don't want to hear about judgment they don't want to, don't want to hear that they're going to stand before God in judgment but I want to talk about in this message the different degrees the different degrees of eternal rewards and punishment. It's the name of my message. The different degrees of eternal rewards and punishment. And I did a three-part series just in the different degrees of judgment, punishment, one time. Because there was so much to it. I'm not going to go through all those texts because I've got to deal with the degrees of rewards and punishment. And I'm getting all in one message hopefully tonight, right? So I didn't want to stay parked here for too long on this subject, but degrees of punishment came up in a recent message, you know, and it just got me thinking, and, and as I continued to pray and seek the Lord about delivering messages, I thought, you know, that's something I haven't really visited in some time, and that's something that most Christians are not aware of, that there's not just rewards, and there's not just punishment, but there's different degrees of not only rewards, but there's also different degrees for the wicked of the punishment. Notice it says that they'll be rewarded, I'm sorry, Go ahead and look at verse 13. And the, dead gave, and, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their what? They're judged according to their deeds. Everyone's deeds are not the same. And there's a lot of fallacies in regard to Christians even thinking that there's no judgment for Christians. And it's true, if you're a Christian, there's, not, there's going to be no condemnation doesn't mean that your sins won't be revealed. doesn't mean that you won't face judgment before God uh, with regard to rewards or a, to one degree or another. But it's also true of the wicked that they are judged. And by the way, at the great white throne judgment, you will not be there in the context of being judged here, right? Because when does Jesus judge us? over a thousand years earlier. Remember, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22, verse, I believe, 12, if you go there, 22, sure I got the verse right, yes, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, I am coming quickly, and my what? Reward is with me to render it to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we get judged according to what we have done 
We still get judged, though, according to what we've done when he returns. This judgment here is over a thousand years after he returns, and it's for the wicked when death and Hades give up their dead. If you go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, you see at the seventh trumpet, which is the last trumpet, which is when Paul said the rapture will take place at the last trumpet, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. When you go to the last trumpet in Revelation chapter uh, 11, beginning at verse 15, we read something really fascinating. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Because Jesus came, take, took over at that point. Boom. Kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, not who are and who were and is to come now, because he's come. And the best manuscripts have who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, that's Armageddon. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to what? Reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So at Armageddon, when the Lord returns and destroys the wicked, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We aren't appointed to the day of wrath, amen. We'll return with him on the Mount of Olives, and we'll be rewarded. Now, some believe we'll be rewarded in the air, you know. Some believe we'll be rewarded in the millennial period. Uh, it doesn't specify really super clearly exactly how that, that, that judgment will take place. We have to wait and see how the Lord does that. But it's interesting. What we're seeing here is that there is a judgment for the believer. Right here, we're seeing it. According to what he's done, it says. And there's a judgment for the unbeliever. There's a huge difference in the judgments. Now, some have said, well, no, no, Christians aren't going to be judged. Christians aren't going to stand before God. You know, and sometimes they'll cite the scripture, uh, Hebrews 8.12, where God says, quote, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. See, God doesn't even remember our sins. He doesn't remember our sins, so he's not going to judge us for what we've done and stuff. So, you know, well, then we have a huge contradiction on our hands if that's how you understand that verse because there's a ton of verses that talk about how he's going to judge us for what we've done. Not condemn us, though. Others will cite John 5.24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So say, hey, look, since we're believing in Jesus, we're trusting him, we pass, you know, from death to life and we will not come into judgment. But how could there be judgment then? It's a really good answer to that, especially when you look at the meaning of the word uh, that, that, how that word is typically translated, that word for judgment there, which we'll get into a little bit later. But let's, let's, look, at how the, let's look at the fact now that the scriptures are very clear that everyone's going to be judged, including believers, and that there are different degrees of punishment and reward. I am, I am a real strong advocate of teaching the scriptures and letting people know what's coming up and encouraging them to modify their lives Modify their motivations, modify to have the fear of God, amen, and to have the love of God and appreciation for who he is in respect to your future. 
A person who doesn't plan for the future, especially his eternal future, is not wise. The Bible calls the man who just continued to store up wealth and build barns because he had so much wealth, he calls him a fool. You know, this day your soul is required of you. God says, you fool, you know, because he didn't account for the bigger picture. And that happens to be applied to hundreds of millions of people today. So we need to understand not only that we're going to face God, but the great severity of which we will face. Uh, now, uh, it's interesting because Hebrews 12, 23 says that God is the judge of all. Not some, not most, but of all. Okay, we know that God will judge the wicked, amen? Because we read in uh, Jude 1, verses 14 and 15, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all of them of their ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words of ungodly sinners that they've spoken against him. There's so many scriptures that have to do with that. However, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's appointed a man once to die, but after this, the what? Judgment. Does that exclude believers? No. No, because if you read the context there, it says he appeared once uh, in regard to our sin, his first coming, but we uh, return a second time, it says, a second time in regard to our salvation. And the context is us facing the Lord in that passage, not just the wicked. Uh, 1 Peter 1.17 says that the Father, quote, impartially judges according to each one's work. And it's there in that context where Peter says, pass your sojourning here on this earth in fear of God. Because he's going to impartially judge everyone. He's warning believers that we're sojourners, we're aliens here, so to speak. We're just passing through, you know. This is not our, God is, you know, we're not of this world, amen. Jesus said, I chose you out of this world, amen. So it's important that I keep that in mind. Uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, that he will repay every man according to the, his deeds. It's Matthew 16, 27. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul wrote that the Lord, quote, will render to each person according to his deeds. Indeed, in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, it says, we, and Paul's writing, we mean Christians, will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in verse 12, he says a couple verses later, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's about as clear as that though. We must all appear, we, Paul, Christians, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed. Now this is interesting. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That seems to teach that our resurrected bodies will be, rewarded, will be rewarded in regard to what our resurrected bodies are like. And there's many scriptures that I don't have time to get into tonight that seem to equate the resurrection and the kind of resurrection you have. Now, there's a resurrection to damnation, it says, for the wicked. In John, I believe, 28, 29 of chapter 5, Jesus says, then shall come forth they that have done good to the resurrection of life, but they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. In Daniel chapter 12, the first couple of verses, it talks about a resurrection to eternal life. Those who sleep in the dust, there'll be a resurrection of life, and there'll be a resurrection of others to eternal contempt. So you see the dead being raised in Revelation 20, the wicked dead from Hades, and then sentenced to the lake of fire. But the righteous are resurrected, and it's very, very interesting 
that you see that right here he says, we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So your body might be more like a VW bug, you know, or more like a Ferrari or something. I don't know, you know. At least it'll be a perfect VW bug though, you know. Sure, it'll blow away a VW bug because you'll be caught up to meet him in the air. You'll be flying, you'll be flying back. No one's going to be bummed out because there's no tears and sorrow in heaven, amen. So we all got it made in Jesus, amen. But hey, it's something to think about. You know, you'll be happy vrooming around, but if people are like vrooming right past you, like, man, should have done more for Jesus, you know. Now, I don't know how, it, we don't know how it works, but it's just kind of interesting when you think about it. It says in Romans 3, 6 that he, is the, he will judge the world. In Matthew 25, 32, well, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we see that the, sheep's, the sheep are judged right along with the goats, right? They're judged together. And it says, come to you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Likewise, he says to the wicked, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, of course, when Jesus comes back at Armageddon, there'll be a separation of the nations, right? Then there'll be a millennial period. Then there'll be the great white throne judgment. So that doesn't mean there's no great white throne judgment because Jesus does not parse that out because that wasn't the, the, the point of the text there. It is the point of Revelation to parse a lot of these things out. Uh, certainly we read in, Revel- in Hebrews 10.30 that the Lord will judge his people. It's talking about his people there. James 3.1 says that teachers will receive a stricter judgment. 1 Peter 4.17 states that judgment be- will begin in the house of God. In fact, go to 1 Peter 4.17. Because that's a scripture that you rarely hear. And it's, it's really interesting. 1 Peter 4.17. Uh, and we can't stay there long because I have a lot of text I'm sharing with you. 1 Peter 4.17 says, for It is time for judgment to begin with what? The household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. So believers that get this idea that, well, the world's going to be judged, but guess what? When I die... I'll just go to heaven and there's no judgment at all. Just get in there and everybody's just happy to see me. No, you know, the judgment doesn't take place right when you get there. And if you're trusting Jesus, you do go there, amen. And you should be just so happy to be there, but there's still a judgment coming, amen. Are you with me tonight? Does it make sense? It's so clear, it's so biblical. Uh, now in Jeremiah 17.10, I think this one's interesting. I, the Lord, search the heart. And this is Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, signifying in the English that it's the tetragrammaton in the Hebrew text in Jeremiah 17, that it's the name of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, as we transliterate the letters. And he says, I, the Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. He searches our hearts. He looks at our hearts. And by the way, Jesus identifies himself as the Yahweh there in Jeremiah 17 in Revelation chapter 2. 
when Jezebel has led his servants to commit sexual sin and eat things, sacrificed to idols, commit idolatrous acts, he's bringing judgment, even though he says he gave Jezebel space, time to repent, but she wouldn't turn back. He says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation, or Jeremiah 17, 10. The Lord said, I search the heart, Yahweh. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to his results. Jesus says, the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each one according to your deeds. Isn't that awesome? In fact, if you're sharing with a Jehovah's Witness and you want a really good scripture to share with them, they come to your door, knock, knock, knock. Jesus isn't God. Oh, yeah? What does Yahweh say in their own translation? Yeah, he searches the hearts and the minds. He's going to judge according to our deeds. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I'm the one that's doing that. He's Yahweh. Amen. There's many evidences, many proofs of that. I just love that one. Uh, so, but he, but he, I will pay each one of you according to your deeds. He searches the hearts. He searches the minds. He sees everything. There's nothing. He says everything that's done in secret will be shouted on the rooftops. Like, whoa. And that could make us feel uncomfortable. I thought I was forgiven of my sins. You are but we still will stand before God. And what's, what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. That's a lie from the pit of hell. What happens in Vegas one day will be shouted from the rooftops. You know? Now, the important thing is, is that if, guess what? Every single one of us will be ashamed if we weren't cleansed by the blood of Jesus and Our Savior wasn't there who died for us, amen? Because we've all fallen short. And I'm not saying everybody's going to be saying, oh, you did that, you know? I think everyone is going to be like, oh, no, I'm standing before God. That's going to be their concern, right? Not like what that person did and what that person did. Well, then why does God do this? Why does he judge us like this still? Very, very important reason, which I'll get into in a minute. It's very, very important as to why he does do this. So, it's important to know. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, listen to what it says. It talks about when the Lord comes that he will, quote, both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. He'll show our motives. But there'll be rewards. Matthew 6, 4. And we haven't even got into the degrees of punishment reward yet. We're just establishing the fact that we'll all stand before God. Matthew 6, 4, Jesus says, so that do, uh, do your charitable giving so that your charitable giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So don't, you know, take out a trumpet. Look at what I've done. Look how much I'm giving, guys. And Jesus, we talked about this recently in one of my messages where Jesus talked about don't be like the Pharisees who sound a trumpet when they give to people. And I said, some people think that's hyperbole. It's not. There's evidence from the ancient history. We see that Jews talked about it. They literally had these little silver trumpets. And they sat on the, and stood in the corners, and when they get to somebody, they'd blow the trumpet. Literally blow it. And let people look at me. You don't get any reward. That's your reward, Jesus says. Okay? You know, let's all be very giving people, but let's do it unto the Lord. Amen? Matthew 6, verse 6. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you have a secret prayer life, man? You ought to have a secret prayer life. It ought to be a big part of your life where you're constantly seeking the Lord. We're called to pray without ceasing. It should just be like, almost like breathing, you know? 
we breathe to stay alive. Well, spiritually, as we seek him in prayer, man, your life is lifted up and encouraged as you seek him and pray. And what an awesome privilege we have to basically talk to him throughout the day. Amen? Well, how can I pray when I'm driving? I find out that I need to pray when I drive sometimes, <laughs> especially the way other people drive and probably the way I drive to a degree. I'm way better than I was, but man. But, you know, uh, sometimes like I'm working on my notes, you know, and writing when I drive. Uh, I'm, I'm the worst Sunday driver. Be careful if you're by my truck, man. <laughs> oh, Johnny's smiling at me thinking, ooh, Joe might be my, one of my early tickets. <laughs> but, you guys, seriously, you need to, we, need, we should be praying. But what's a trip is, when you're praying in secret, somehow, someway, on Judgment Day, you get rewarded for praying in secret. That's a blow mind. And these are things we ought to do. Amen? He doesn't, we don't deserve things because of doing them. He's just, he's just a good father, you know? We should take out the trash. Our kids should take out the trash, right? But when he takes it out, and you give him an allowance if you do, that's, that's, like, that's more grace, amen? Because Jesus says when you, a servant comes in and he serves his master, he doesn't come in and look for a thank you. He's just done his duty. In those days, they had indentured servants, right? That were paying off a debt, right? So we could never pay off our debt. So whatever we do, we're, we're never really in the plus column where the Lord's like, oh, I owe them, you know? He just, he's just a plus God in his heart. He's just full of grace. He just wants to bless us. But also, he does want to bless us according to what we've done because there's a reciprocation to us to be faithful to his word that he appreciates that blesses hearts, his heart, whereby he wants to shower you with his blessing. And we read in Matthew 16, 18, so that your fasting will not be noticed by people. He said to put oil on your face. So some people would go and they fast for days and they look like they're dying on the streets and, you know, hold a sign up. Yeah, I'm fasting. Isn't that awesome? No, they wouldn't literally do that, I don't think. But the guys with the trumpets might have had something going on like that. But he's saying, don't make it look like you're fasting. He goes, it's quite the opposite. By the way, for those people who say it's ungodly for women to wear makeup. Right now he's telling men when they're fasting and women to wear makeup. Okay. No Bible verse says you can't wear makeup. I mean, you want to, don't want to be, you know, gaudy about it. Uh, but you know what? He says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there you have giving, praying, and fasting all get rewarded by the Lord. If they're done in secret. If they're done without the motivation to get praise from men. Jesus promised, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. To render everyone according to what he's done. Now, it's interesting. We've seen that the believer's judgment is not only at a different time. It's when Christ returns from the unbeliever's judgment, which is at the end of the, after the millennium. But also, they're totally different in nature. The, believers, the unbeliever's judgment will be a judgment of condemnation and punishment and will be based, we've read, with the believer, the unbeliever, will be based on the things that he's what? Done. Remember reading that? The believer will not be condemned. He will, he will be with the Lord in the heavenly kingdom forever. And when I say heavenly kingdom, I don't mean in heaven forever because we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Amen. Then New Jerusalem, which is the heavenly kingdom, will come down to earth. So it's still a heavenly kingdom that will be with him forever. But we'll be rewarded for what we've done in that kingdom. And we've looked at, so the timing's different, but also the nature is different. Now, why is God judging the wicked? 
and having it be so public. And why is he judging the believer in having it public? Ultimately, I believe that, like, and I believe it's very, very clear in Revelation. And the main word to think of here as to why God discloses his judgment upon the wicked. I mean, he knows the end from the beginning. You know, he's God. He could just say, hey, boom, this judgment could take place. But in one word, vindication. Vindication. God wants to be vindicated. He wants to show that his righteous acts are true. That he's, he is genuine. He's true. He's authentic to his word. That he's kept his word. Because Satan, keep in mind, for thousands of years, is called the accuser of the brethren. Amen? And Satan will energize the beast, the Antichrist. And during the tribulation period, it says the beast will blaspheme God in heaven and his tabernacle, his people. The Antichrist, the beast, will speak evil of God. And I'm telling you right now, man, there are so many, so many popular movies, comics, you know, Marvel and otherwise, DC, where... God is portrayed as evil. He's portrayed as an evil God. His dark materials, which is almost as big in England, and there's been the movies out here in, in our theaters, as Harry Potter, and it presents God as evil. It does. And that, that, that Satan and fallen angels who use witches eventually destroy God in that series. It's wicked. There's a cop popular comic called Preacher, by Enos, who makes God evil, and then the heroes are trying to destroy God from his throne in heaven. And not kidding, I mean, on and on and on. We're getting ready to, you know, getting closer and closer to getting our Marvel video done, and we show scenario after scenario where God's portrayed as evil. And that's a conditioning that's going on in the world right now to prepare the world for the Antichrist, because he's going to step into that role, and the arch villain, the Antichrist, is going to be like a savior. Who can make war with him, the world will say, right? He's going to be like the good guy. And God, he's evil. I mean, just think how Christianity is portrayed, amen? Just think how, you know, Richard Dawkins, the poster boy of atheism, presents the God of the Bible. I mean, I can't even, it's, it's hard to even quote many of the things he says about the creator. He calls him wicked and so forth. So people are getting brainwashed for years in this way. And guess what? When God's judgment comes upon the wicked, he's going to be vindicated. And one way he's going to be vindicated is, he's, is everything the Antichrist has done. And the, what's really a trip is the beast and the false prophet. I just think it's very interesting. They don't even face a public judgment. Oh, it's public in that they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're destroyed at Armageddon. But they, they don't wait in Hades for a thousand years like the others and more than a thousand years of people that are already dead, right? They're cast immediately into the lake of fire. It says that. Revelation chapter 19. Jesus comes back because everybody's seen their folly. Everybody's seen their blasphemy. They don't need a public hearing. Boom. But for the rest of humanity, the wicked will, will stand before God and the wicked will stand before God. And our judgment as believers won't be about bringing shame upon us. We will rejoice. Oh, they'll be, you know... It'll be hard at certain points, I'm sure, but the fact that we've, I am going to be just so happy when I pass the threshold, amen, into the kingdom. How about you? I'm not, I'm honestly not like, I can't wait, what kind of rewards am I going to get? I just can't wait to see Jesus, amen? But that's the icing on the cake, you know? And then when it happens, none of us will be like, oh, it's a bummer, Lord gave me these things. 
you know? And when I say judgment in your resurrected body, we don't know what that is exactly. It says in Philippians chapter 3 and 1 John, we don't know yet what we're going to be like, but we're going to be like him. And our bodies will be fashioned like in his glorious body. But you look at Satan before he fell in Ezekiel chapter 28. It says he was perfect in all of his ways. He's beautiful and until iniquity was found in him. And he was lifted up because of his pride. But it says when you look at him that he was created with topaz. It mentions all these different jewels that he was adorned with. An incredibly beautiful angel. He was the anointed cherub. And it's quite interesting that he, you know, uh, and he walked in the midst of the, you know, the mountain of the Lord in the stones of fire. I think it's interesting when you see there's a rainbow, there's trees, there's a river of life, there's, there's incredibly beautiful stones. I can't, can't get your brain around how beautiful it's going to be. But guess what? You're going to have all these creatures, these, these human beings that are going to be shining and refracting his glory. That's Revelation 21 and 22 when we get into the bride. We look at the stones and everything. We'll get deeper into that. But there's some heavy stuff coming up. But the scriptures should incentivize you to want, the Bible talks about having a better resurrection. Now, it's interesting. God will vindicate himself and everything that the ungodly have spoken. Remember in Jude when I said judgment's coming for sure for the wicked. Jude verse one, chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 talks about how they'll be judged for all the ungodly things they've done, all the wicked things they've done, all the ungodly things they've said. So what's going to happen is his judgment's going to reveal these, where all, the lies and God's going to be vindicated. It's not like he needs to be vindicated, but he wants to be vindicated. And he's going to be vindicated now, it's interesting, when he vindicates himself and judgment comes, we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that the wicked, it says, that all the wicked, it says, they will be without excuse. No excuses. And in Romans three nineteen, a couple chapters later, it says, every mouth will be shut. Nobody will have an excuse, every mouth will be shut. There'll be nobody like, uh, what about this, Lord? No, sorry. It's all so clear, you can't even open your mouth. And it's interesting because it says in Romans 14 and the Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will be bowing down as well. So let's talk for a little bit about the different degrees of punishment and then the different degrees of reward. Uh, Jesus talked in Luke chapter 20 verse 47 about those who will receive a greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. Jesus talked, said to Pilate, Pilate was in trouble. His wife had a dream, don't touch him, the man's innocent. Pilate himself said, said, I find no fault in him, right? So he's in trouble. But Jesus said, those who have handed you over to me have greater condemnation. Wow. Why would the Jews that handed Jesus over to Pilate have greater condemnation than Pilate? Because they should have what? They knew, knew who he was, to a degree at least, right? They hardened their hearts and rejected the light that was given them. And God used that to his glory because it says if the rulers of the world had known who they were crucifying, exactly what they were doing, they went to crucify the Lord of glory. But that doesn't mean that he said, I don't want you to know who I am. That means that's how the human heart and its wickedness reacted to not wanting Christ to reign over them. And God used that to pull off the crucifixion, which is what we call the messianic secret, which is mind-blowing. So also, uh, it's true that there's greater condemnation because 
there's greater sin. Jesus talked about the unforgivable sin being, you know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 3, 28 and 29. He says, all men are sins, so we've forgiven the sons of men. And blasphemies, whatsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that sins against the Holy Spirit has never forgiven us in this world or the world to come. And in Matthew 23, 23, he talked about the Pharisees were not keeping the greater commandments of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and cumin, and, have, and it is pronounced cumin, not just somebody saying cumin right now, because someone said that to me after service a couple weeks back, and then somebody went to dictionary.com when they were telling me that, and they go, cumin, whatever the dictionary voice, you know. You can pronounce it either way, though. Uh, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, They've what? Neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. I just went through this verse for the, in a totally different message, not to do with the weightier things and degrees of judgment, but here we see that again. Jesus talked about how those Pharisees who devour widows' houses will have greater judgment. That's heavy. So in one sense, there's greater judgment. Why? There's greater judgment because there's greater commandments being broken. But also there's greater judgment because there's greater light being sinned against. There's greater knowledge of rebellion. And we know this, and that relates back again to Pilate. Those who handed you over to me have greater condemnation. But we also know that because Jesus said in Matthew 11, 22 through 24, that the judgment will be more tolerable for some than others on the day of judgment. In fact, listen to Matthew, well, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, 22. Isn't it great to get together and say, I mean, this is kind of a heavy message in a way like, whoa, man, I'm going to face God in judgment. But isn't it great to be able to get together and say, hey, this is what the Lord says about the future. This is about my life. It's important stuff, amen. I want to know about how to, it helps you plan for the future, you know. It helps you realize, man, I need to be serious about it. And we read in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, go ahead and pick it up at verse 22. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, because he did all these miracles of Capernaum. That was like his hometown area. And you, and you Capernaum, will be, not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into, or to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have been, it had remained to this day. Nevertheless, I tell you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day, of, in the day of judgment, than for you. I mean, it's just spelling it out, guys. It's really, really clear. On the day of judgment, in the punishment that the Sodomites will go through, it'll be less severe than those in Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus did all these radical miracles, man. Lot wasn't going around doing all kinds of miracles, right? Lot wasn't the son of God, amen? And they had so much more light that they'll be judged because of their wickedness. Now, look at Luke chapter 12. Go to Luke chapter 12. And when you get there, Luke chapter 12, go ahead and 
Look at verse, 50, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their, ra- their rations at the proper time? Blessed is a slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Okay? So the servant's supposed to give out God's meat. You know, give out the word of God. Teach his word. And he'll be blessed if he's found doing that. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Wow. Verse 45. But if that slave, okay, that same servant who's giving out meat in due season, says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Revelation 21.8 says the unbelieving, the cowardly, the unbelieving, whoremongers, liars, you know, and so forth, sexually immoral, idolaters, and so forth, go to the lake of fire. So this guy's going to the lake of fire. But look at verse 47. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready to act accordingly will receive what? What? Many lashes. Many lashes. Now think about that. How many? Enough to cut them in pieces. That's pretty severe, right? And then it'll be put with the unbelievers, which is the lake of fire. Verse 48. But the one who did not know, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but what? Few. He didn't understand the fullness of God's will and he, his whipping will be worse and it's a, it's a metaphor of the coming judgment, right? From, er, uh, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. I remember when this fellowship was brand new, after we were meeting in my home for, you know, a while, but we actually made it actual, said, oh, Lord willing, okay, sounds like, Lord, you want to start a church, and we became a church, and it wasn't but a, a, I don't know, maybe two, three months into that, that a gentleman was visiting and going to the church. And I think early on I did a message just on this a text or similar text, not on this whole, all these texts, but on how there's stricter judgments. And that guy was investigating. I don't think he was a believer. He was looking. He said he wasn't going to follow Christ because he didn't want to know more. Because he would have a stricter judgment. Wait a minute, man. You want to come to know Jesus, right? And you want to know him so you can be saved, amen? And it's not, if you're saved and you're trusting Jesus, you get greater what? Rewards, amen? If you're apostate or you reject Jesus, you get greater damnation, amen? So it wasn't a wise move on that that gentleman's behalf. And it just blew me away. His reasoning and Jesus deals with that kind of reasoning to a degree, which we'll see in a little bit. But notice that there are different degrees of judgment. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And when you get there, go ahead and pick it up at verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, speaking of these false teachers who target believers... They, they speak out these arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, 
by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So who are they targeting? Those who have barely escaped from the wicked? Verse 19, promising them what? Freedom while they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For what a man is overcome by this, he is what? Enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the Greek word is epinosis there. That's why if you have the NIV, it says after knowing Jesus. It's experiential knowledge. And even John MacArthur, who believes in what saved, always saved, in his commentary on 2 Peter, says the word epinosis speaks of those who have been saved through knowing Jesus and its experiential knowledge. However, he does that in chapter 1 when it's used. When he gets to chapter 2, crickets, no comment. But the NIV does a good translation after knowing Jesus. And by the way, it speaks of even Balaam, how he forsook the right way. He was a true prophet of God at one point. But notice it says this, for if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than what? The first. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21. For it would be what? Better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, what? To turn away from the holy commandment had on to them. So if you come to know Jesus with epinosis and then you turn away from him, your last end is what? Worse than your first before you've been saved. It'd be better for you not to have known the way of righteousness. Who's the way of righteousness? Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and life, he says. Then to have coming to know, him, to know him and then turn away from the holy commandment delivered to you. This happened to them according to what? The true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after watch, washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So this is very, very important. Sometimes a backslidden Christian thinks, well, I'll just be in the same boat that these non-believers are if I don't get right with God. Wrong. Wrong. Your last state is worse than your beginning. It would have been better for you not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the Holy Commandment delivered to you. Do you understand what he's saying there? So the, the apostate professing Christian who says, well, I'm just lost like the rest of the world now. I'm not following Jesus anymore. I'm living for myself and so forth. And, you know, whether they knew the Lord or not, let's say they just had a lot of knowledge about Jesus, okay? Let's say it was a professing Christian who was never even really saved, but they had all kinds of knowledge about how to be saved, how to follow Jesus, what to do, right? Or for the sake of, you know, or they genuinely were saved. And like it says in 2 Peter 1, they forgot that they were washed from their past sins. Either way, both those folks are in trouble. It's better for them not to have known, right? The way of righteousness, and after I've known it, to turn back to the holy commandment delivered to them. And the latter end is worse than the beginning. That's serious. And this, and I preach this way because I see these texts in the early church. The early church was vibrant because they preached this text. And they recognized this is serious. I gotta be serious about persevering and trusting Jesus to the end. And we recognize, and I've shown you, Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 14. The early church continued. It talks about how they'd go from church to church and they'd encourage them to continue in the grace of God or to continue in the faith. That was, that's why you continually read Jesus' teachings about being ready for his return and be faithful and being right over and over and over again. He says these things in different ways. And so many different ways he talks about his return and be faithful until he comes back. 
whether it's the, you know, the, the talents that are buried or whether it's, you know, uh, the bridesmaids and keeping their lamps lit or the, the, the guy that's preparing for the thief. And he gives all this different imagery. Why does he emphasize it so much? Because he loves us and he wants us to be faithful, amen, and to continue to look to him. But you get these really severe warnings, not because he wants us to just abide, but because, yes, that's true too, but also he wants you to recognize how serious it will be if you turn away from him. And it's not that you're just going to have the same lot as non-believers. It would be way worse than the non-believers who didn't really know the will of the Lord very much, right? It's what Jesus said. There'll be many stripes, many lashes. Same place, but different degrees of punishment. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, look at what it says. Go back to chapter 2. Having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having heart training greed, accursed children. Wow. It even says the blackest of darkness is reserved for them in chapter 2. Wow. Jude talks about that, like the blackest of darkness, Jude says. Here's like the black darkness. It's like he's emphasizing how horrible their judgment will be. Can you imagine being in the black darkness? I mean, it says of Judas, guess what? Jesus said it'd be better for him that he was never even born. You know what it says of Judas? That he went to his own place. He had a special place in hell. That's just, woo, man. If this doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. In fact, it's interesting because Hebrews 10, and when I was referencing a couple of these recently, and I later decided to teach on it, this is one of the ones I mentioned, Hebrews 10, along with 2 Peter, not the others though, but these two. Hebrews 10, look at verse 26. The author of Hebrews, who's definitely a believer, says, if we, that means us believers, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, now, knowledge of truth is a term that's used over and over again for salvation. God wills that all will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of truth, coming to Jesus, and then we say, and what he's talking about with willful sin right here, he's not saying you fell short of God's glory, okay? He's not saying, man, you, any, anybody and everybody here has times where we fell short, we're heartbroken over something that we've done or whatever, but... You ask the Lord to forgive you. You ask for cleansing. Amen? You repented. You're going forward to the Lord again. The context here is not somebody just falling into sin and then repenting. Although that's very serious too because your heart can get hardened and you can get away from the Lord. But what he's talking about here is someone who's rejected Jesus Christ after receiving the knowledge of truth, then rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and gone into a life of rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because watch the context here. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a what? Sacrifice for sins. Which, by the way, destroys Calvinism, amen? Because it shows you that the sacrifice for sins was there, amen? Calvinism teaches that all oh, Jesus only sacrificed himself for the elect, not for apostates, not for the lost world, and so forth. But there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But verse 27 says what? But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Wow. Not their works, but consume the adversaries, the enemies of God. James 4.4 4 says, You adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Adulteresses. 
In other words, those who turn their back on Jesus can become his enemies. And here those who receive the knowledge of the truth become his adversaries. And there's, only, there's no more sacrifice for sins. There's no more forgiveness. Why? Because God's unwilling to forgive them. He says, no, I don't love you anymore. No, because they've turned away from him. Don't think this applies to you if you're trusting Jesus right now. It applies to you if you're apostate and you want nothing to do with Jesus. Then there's no sacrifice for sins for you. That's the point in the book of Hebrews is that there's no, there's no salvation outside of Jesus. You go back to Moses. You can go to back to the tabernacle. You go back to the Aaronic priesthood. You go to all these things. There's no salvation in those things. Salvation is only in Christ. There's no more sacrifice for sins, he says, if you reject Jesus, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now look what he says in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Could you imagine you would die under the testimony of two, three witnesses in the days of Moses. You got the law, the Mosaic law. You're following the law, but you're not even saved by keeping the law, by the way. In the Old Testament, they weren't saved by keeping the law. Some people think, well, in the Old Testament, you had to keep the law to be saved. No, they were saved through faith in the, in the Lord, amen? And their faith was credited to them with righteousness because it was, it was credited them righteous through faith in what the Messiah would do for them, even though they didn't fully understand that, amen? But if you rejected his law, that you were rejecting him, and what would happen? Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You'd be stoned to death. That'd be horrible, right? Well, guess what? That would be, well, yeah, praise God, we're under grace. Because if I turn away from the Lord now, I won't be stoned to death and God will be so soft to me. I'll just be killed or die and get, just lose my rewards, but I'll go to heaven. Wrong. Wrong. So many millions of professing believers believe that. Yeah, if I'm apostate, my pastor told me I'll just lose my rewards. No, ha, it's worse than that. Oh, well, the Lord will take, my, take me early. No, it's worse than that. Well, are you saying I'd be like stoned to death? No, it's worse than that. Look at the next verse. How much severe punishment, you catch that? What's the context there? How much severe punishment than what? Than being stoned to death under two or three witnesses by rejecting the law of Moses. Because you reject someone greater than Moses. You're rejecting Jesus and greater light and greater salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews chapter 2, the first few verses. If they did not escape from those who heard him on Mount Sinai, how much, how much less will we escape if we refuse him who speaks from heaven? The new covenant, that's in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12, the same, the same emphases are there. I just don't have time to go to all those texts. I'm starting to think of new ones. I'm like, well, this is why it becomes part 2 and 3 and 4. You know, but we'll stop right there. But look at it. Anyone, or verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will receive, deserve? Because you, des you deserve it. Because you have greater light, greater salvation. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And the word sanctified is used for salvation. Read the book of Hebrews. Read chapter 10. It's talking about sanctification isn't used. Sanctification typically means set apart for God's glory, and where you become more holy. But in Hebrews 10, if you look at it earlier, it's talking about, and I've read a lot of commentaries on chapter 10, and they're pretty much all in agreement, yeah. Sanctification in chapter 10 is just a word for salvation. And it says, well, whether you're, talk, you're talking about justification here or literal sanctification, a little bit later in chapter 10, he says, the just shall live by faith, the justified one. But if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Woo! And now here's the sanctified one. How much severe punishment do you think he was deserved who has trampled under for the Son of God? How can you do that to the one who died for you? Has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. That might, that might even include, you know, blasphemy the Holy Spirit at that point. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, our pay. And again, the Lord will judge who? 
his people. Verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's warning believers here who are thinking of turning away from him that it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God and it's severe judgment than what happened to Moses. This is New Testament theology. This is solid New Testament theology. It's not preached because it doesn't sell. Because it's like, wait, you want to terrify the sheep? No, I want to be faithful to what he says to me and my brothers and sisters. In fact, these words have been such a blessing to me through the years because it caused me to fear the Lord. It caused me to love the Lord and appreciate his grace more. It's like, whoa, man. He's holy. We don't deserve any kind of mercy because <laughs> mercy by its definition is not getting what you deserve, right? And grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve, amen? Blessing. Now, it's interesting when you look at these texts because there's also greater degrees of reward. In Jesus' parable of the nobleman and his stewards, it's quite interesting uh, we have one steward being rewarded and given authority over five cities, another one being given authority over ten cities. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19:11. While they're listening to these things, Jesus went to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant count, uh, country and to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his, citizen, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, uh, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that, those, that these slaves to whom he had given the money, he be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina uh, has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well, done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are able to be in authority over 10 cities. Wow, given authority of 10 cities, amen? Pretty cool. The second came saying, your mina, Master, has made five minas. And he said to him, son, or said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina gives it back to him, which I kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not, you did not sow. Well, knowing that, he should have made a different move then. Verse 22, he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having Come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Wow. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them Bring them here and slay them in my presence. Whew. Wow, that's pretty heavy, huh? We've got a serious Lord here, amen? We need to take him more seriously. You know what? I hate to do this to you, but, uh, hmm, time we start. We start at 7.15, right? You know what? Uh, is it okay to have a part two so we can really, I hate to rush through the rewards part. 
Amen? It's like, wait a minute. We were out all this judgment, severe judgment. Then we got to rewards. You just finished. Yeah, let's do, let's do a whole message on rewards. How's that sound? Amen? Praise the Lord. Okay, well, uh, otherwise, you know what? I'm going to feel like, you know, I don't want to rush through these texts, you know. But guess what? One thing you should be motivated to do is say, Lord, I'm sticking with you. Amen? I've just seen so many people, you know, through the years, you know. I hear of churches where, you know, there are just all kinds of people, you know, are backslidden and whatever else. And it's like, and right here through the years, I've seen people backslide, fall away. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you, if you fall away from the Lord after going here, your judgment is probably stricter than if you went to Joel Osteen's church. Uh, would you agree? Because you know the Lord's will. The idea isn't like, well, I don't want to be in more trouble. I'll go to Joel Osteen's church. Well, then you're in trouble because you should know better than that by now, right? Amen. But the idea is not to say, what can I get away with? To say, how can I better please the Lord? That should be our hearts, amen? How can I glorify the Lord better? And that's why this fellowship should be a huge blessing to you because we're constantly searching the scriptures and encouraged to walk in righteousness. And my goal is that you're not only, you're saved. If you're trusting Jesus right now, you're saved, okay? You're blessed. And let me just deal with a couple of those texts that were already mentioned in, in closing because I should at least bring up those. What about the scripture that says, he'll remember our iniquities no more? It doesn't mean that he forgets them. It doesn't say he forgets them. He's omniscient. He can't forget them. Amen. It means that he will not hold them against you in the sense of condemning you. Amen. It doesn't mean that you aren't rewarded or lose reward because then we'll get into that next week. It just means that he's not going to condemn you because of those things if you're trusting Jesus because it's based on the new covenant. That's the context of that passage. And also, what about the scripture that says, you know, those who believe in him will have passed from death to life and will not come into judgment. But we just saw all these scriptures, Joe, where there's judgment. Yes, for the believer too, yes. And we're to look at more with regard to rewards, which are really cool scriptures, by the way. Well, guess what? The word judgment there is chrysis, and the, the word usually or often means condemnation. It has a negative connotation so often when it's used. And that's why the NIV correctly translates it best, though I believe those who believe have passed from death to life and will not come into condemnation, okay? That means you won't be condemned. It doesn't mean that you won't stand before God and give an account for your life because Paul said we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our lives, amen? But I want you and me, when we stand before him, first of all, you want to be right when he comes, trusting the blood of Jesus, amen? Because it's only through grace and the blood of Jesus that you're saved from the coming judgment, not based on what you do at all. What you do is just is evidence as to whether you're trusting Jesus or not. Amen? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And you should, we should all have that memorized if we don't have that memorized. By grace are we saved, what? Through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift. It says we've been justified freely. It talks about that the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God. I love that. It's not just a gift of God. It's a free gift of God. It's eternal life through Jesus Christ, amen? So if you have not been saved yet, you want to make sure that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you put your trust in him and believe what he declares, his gospel, that he died for your sins, that he rose again and conquered death, sin in the grave, amen? 
And the, the awesome thing is that each and every one of us can have salvation because he's not partial. He loves us. It's a free gift. Christ went through everything, went through all that, it took our sins upon himself on the cross so we could be saved. He, he died to save you. He longs for you to put your trust in him. Amen? It's not like, will he accept me? Jesus says, whoever comes to me, John 6, 37, I will not cast out any. He promised that. He's not going to cast you out. Amen? That's so beautiful. So if you haven't put your trust in him, man, you're doomed. But why be doomed? You don't have to be. Because he already paid for your sins. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? And you'll pass from death to life. I just told, was told I got 10 minutes left here. But, because we've been stopping at what? 8.45. But I'll tell you what. Um, man, I could race through the scripture a little bit, but I think we'll do a whole other message on those. But I just want to encourage you guys to just be serious about your walks with the Lord. Amen? And recognize, recognize how serious it is to commit apostasy. And when he specifically deals with believers, that's when you have Luke 12. The one who said he knew his master's will and said, ah, my Lord delays his coming. If that servant, the same one that's doing his master's will, takes a turn. Many stripes, many lashes, right? That's one, right? Hebrews chapter 2, which we didn't go to. How shall we neglect such a great salvation? It's such a great salvation. It's so amazing what, what God did for you on the cross. That God became a man. And it's hard to get your brain around that. Wow, this is God who became a man. And it says in Romans chapter 5, around verses 7 and 8, that rarely, very rarely it says, very rarely, if I, I'm thinking of the NIV now, it's, it's great in different translations, but the NIV says very rarely will someone die, will anyone die, it says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Know that? Very rare. It's very rare that anyone would die for a righteous person. But it goes on to say, but he, he, you know, actually before it says what he did, it says very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, right? But then it goes on to say, for a good person, someone might possibly dare, that's NIV, somebody might possibly dare. It like builds the adjectives in the, in the, like, so very rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Yeah. Then he says, but, <laughs> but for a good person, someone that's relatively good to other people, somebody might possibly dare to die. It's very rare though. But while we were yet sinners, you and I, rebels against the Lord, we weren't righteous. He died for us. Amen? The Bible says the godly for the ungodly. The just for the unjust. While we were helpless, the verse says before those two I just mentioned, while we were helpless at the right time, God provided his son for us. Amen? Wow. That's mind-blowing. These movies, you know, that are out, you know, so many times somebody, somebody might, I mean, they try to, the only stories that are the most, the stories that are the most profound or beautiful is when they copy Jesus. Somebody gives their life, you know. But even in those movies, you don't see somebody sacrifice their lives for all the criminals 
Isn't that right? That's what Jesus did. Us, we were the criminals. So I want to encourage you, do not neglect such a great salvation, amen? Put your trust in Jesus and continue to look to him, amen? We'll pray and still be five minutes early, which is so rare for me. So since we're talking about rare verses, we'll have a rare Bible study, but let's seek the Lord. Father God, we come into your presence and wow, you are so amazing. And we pray, Father, that you help us to understand how amazing your grace is and that you don't want any of us to perish. And that's why you give these warnings, Father, because you want us to know this is real, that you're real, and that our time on earth is real before you, and that we will stand before you. We thank you, Father, that we can stand before you, that at the judgment seat of Christ at his return, and not come into condemnation because of what he's done for us, but we be rewarded according to our works. We pray that nobody here in the reaches of my voice, or through live stream, or through uh, the internet, through YouTube, or whatever way people access the CDs or what have you, Lord, that not one person here would perish and that none would turn their backs on such a great salvation so that no one would have a severe judgment than the wicked who didn't fully understand your will. We thank you that we can better understand your will and not only rejoice in our salvation, but that we can have a great reward in you because we pleased you and brought great joy to your hearts, knowing not that we'll have great rewards, but knowing that we pleased you who loved us so much, who deserves all the praise and all the thanksgiving and all the honor, now and forevermore, in Jesus' name, amen.